Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode, I am joined with pricing expert John Manning, where we explore the issue of how companies should price their products, the reason why pricing is more an art than a science, the myth about pricing and economic theory, and why people would not pay $60 for an original Banksy that would otherwise cost $10,000. John also shares with us the two golden rules that every company should follow in order to price their products or service. Are you an educator? Are you passionate about education and knowledge? Have you considered taking ownership and control over your content? If you're interested in creating a website, a podcast, or even educational videos, like a flipped classroom, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash community, register your interest, and I'll be in touch. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, why not subscribe to the Economic Rockstar podcast and you will get access to all previous episodes, including comedians Andrew Heaton and Joram Bauman and multi-millionaire Ryan Blair. I want to get to know my Economic Rockstar listener so I can serve you better and make an even better show. So why not head over to economicrockstar.com forward slash survey, answer a few questions and be in with a chance of winning a $50 Amazon gift voucher. What they teach you in economics about pricing is true in theory, but it's irrelevant in practice. I know why there is interest in price elasticity, but I sort of think it's, it's a bit like the abominable snowman. There's no formula to calculate the consumer surplus. You know, you hear a lot of economists talking about consumer surplus, which in business community is is known as leaving money on the table. There's no formula for that. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honored to have John Manning join me today. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks, thanks for having me. John Manning is the founder and principal consultant of Sans Prix and has over two decades of pricing experience in a wide variety of industries. Since establishing Sonspre, John and his associates have generated millions of dollars in incremental revenue for clients in places such as the UK, USA, India and Australia. Increasingly in demand as both a speaker and educator, John has spoken at many conferences, workshops, webinars and educational institutions across the Asia-Pacific, the Middle East and the United Kingdom. In 2011, John and Greg Ayers established Pricing Profits, the world's first and only online pricing advisory service, where clients can ask a panel of global pricing experts and thought leaders what price to charge for a product or service and why. John holds a Bachelor of Business in Applied Economics from Deakin University in Australia, a Graduate Diploma of Business Management from Monash University, Australia, and a Master of Arts in European Studies from the University of West London. He is a member of the Australian Institute of Management and the Professional Pricing Society, and is our third Australian guest in the Economic Rockstar podcast. John, I'd love to explore a lot about pricing because in economics, that's one thing that students would be introduced to. How does price get established? It is. It's one of those economics 101 topics. And I guess, um, you know, I did my degree in applied economics rather than the, the theoretical economics and I've sort of come to the conclusion after 25 years in pricing that what they teach you in economics about pricing is true in theory but it's irrelevant in practice and I can expand on those sorts of things if you like but it's you're dealing with people's behavior in pricing and it is it is more of an art than a science in in my books Um, you know if pricing was a science you would be able to predict what price a Van Gogh will sell for at at auction at Christie's or Sotheby's. You can't do that. That that outcome depends on people's behaviours. So for me, pricing is an art rather than a science. And we're introduced to a lot of methods. Like there's a, a law of demand and a law of supply. And we're told theoretically that pricing follows a a you know, if prices go up, your demand is going to fall and vice versa. And Adam Smith explained this through what he called the invisible hand. But students tend to ask the question, how do we come about this price? And we can only fall back to this invisible hand method. But it has a lot of behavioral elements to it that the 
in econ one oh one doesn't really pick up. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, sorry. I'm a skeptical of the invisible hand, and I know Adam Smith only mentioned it once in in the Wealth of Nations and so forth. And I've really recently redesigned the logo for Pricing Profits, and it's a it's a little character that appears from the side of a of a of a price tag because there is no such thing as an invisible hand. Prices are actually set by people like me. Um, you know. Visible, not not on this particular podcast, but I, I I'm, I'm visible. I physically exist, and there are there are many people like me that actually set prices um, for products and services. So the invisible hand is a bit of a myth. The the price that the market will bear is a bit of a myth. Again, it's somebody saying, well, if a competitor's charging this, do we charge the same? Do we charge more? Do we charge less? Um, but in turn, and just. Your other part of that question is is about the how do you actually set prices? Well, depending on which survey you read, it's roughly seventy to eighty percent of companies in the world set prices on a cost plus basis. So they add up all the costs involved in manufacturing something or providing a service, add on a desirable margin and markup and so forth, cross their fingers and hope for the best. Outside that 70 to 80% of companies, the rest do things like um, revenue management that the airlines and the hotels do, which is a bit more um, variable, a bit more fluctuation in it. Um, there are those that will do value-based pricing um, where you actually try to quantify what value a product or service provides to the customer and take a percentage of that quantified value as as the price point. So, um, I can see the difficulty yeah. with the value-based pricing in terms of trying to almost predict or anticipate what a person would value, but maybe these companies are getting or onto something more so than those who are actually setting up prices based on cost-based Values. Well, nobody cares about cost. I mean, no. you ask any one of your listeners, if you ask them, what um, do, do you care about, about the costs of your telco or your cable TV company? The answer is no. They care about the value they get, what shows they're getting, whether they've got 99.9% uptown and things like that. Nobody, nobody really buys anything from someone just because they are a low-cost provider. They will buy from low-cost providers, but not necessarily because of. Um, and, you know, every a lot of companies to just on a, an annual cycle where they increase their prices at the start of the financial year or the end of the financial year, um, and they will, they will go out and say, look, our, our costs have gone up, so we're increasing our prices. You're talking to the customer about something they don't care about. They care about value, which is why it's, you know, value-based pricing is is more sustainable because both the customer cares about value and the vendor cares about value. So everybody's talking about the same thing. If you're talking about costs, you might care about costs, but the company doesn't. And if you're talking about the actual price point, well, the customer's trying to minimize that and the vendor's trying to maximize it. So you're in a conflict zone there. So the best strategy is just to focus on value. And I think when you're saying this, Netflix is going through my mind because they're a new type of company who are providing TV viewing on demand as such. And when they announced their cost structure, their changes, their stock price actually plummeted. They, they have they have had some amazing trials and tribulations with pricing. And I, I don't know how many of your listeners remember in, in America in the summer of 2011, they um, they could see the writing on the wall that the DVD rental business was in decline and the streaming video rental business was in the ascendancy. So they actually had to separate the subscription to manage the decline of one and the growth in the other. Now, if you wanted to retain uh, both mediums, both the DVD and the streaming video, you were looking at a 60% price increase. They went ahead with that and... Within a week, they had 84,000 hostile comments on their Facebook page saying, we don't like this. Um, and if you, if you, you know, go to a, um, 
a financial share price website, you will see this huge dip in their share price. It was it was close to about three hundred dollars a share at that time, and yeah. then it plummeted to about a dollar fifty. And it's only sort of recently when House of Cards has um, you know taken off, and then Orange is the New Black, that it's got back up to those previous levels. So they they really learned a lot in that, and they're learning a lot in Ireland as well because. They've recently announced a price increase in Ireland, but they're they're not they're giving sort of two years' notice, I believe, or eighteen months' notice, which is probably close to close to roundabout now. But they actually announced a price increase well in advance in in the Irish market. Maybe they were experimenting with it because you know they're not not companies experiment with their pricing because we don't have a pricing lab. You've only got the real world, so. When Netflix provided some of these shows, then it showed a value. And that's where the price structure actually reflects the value that some of these shows actually give to the customers. Oh, absolutely. And, and, the, and the pricing model in itself, you know, if you go back to the origins of the, the pricing model, what happened was Reed Hastings, who founded the company, found a, a stack of newspapers one Sunday morning and under the bottom of the newspapers was a copy of Apollo 11 or Apollo whatever the Apollo movie was, and he's gone, oh, this is meant to be back at the video shop a month ago. So he took it back and he got fined $40. And he could have bought about three copies of it on DVD for that fine. And then he just said to himself, you know, why can't why can't I just have DVDs like a gym membership where it's, you know, 10 bucks a month and so forth. And, you know, now, you know, 10 years later or whatever it is, we are living in a subscription economy. You know, everybody is trying to sell you a subscription, whether it's zero accounting software or Dollar Shave Club with razor blades. Is there a defined pricing methodology that we should follow in order for companies and individuals to price some of the products or services that they provide? I don't don't think there's – it's a contingency. You need to – not every – pricing model is going to work for every industry. But what I would say is there is I would strongly recommend having a look at what the other industries do with their pricing because, you know, there's no point reinventing the wheel. Um, other other people have done it and, you know, learn from their mistakes, talk to those industries and so forth and find out what works and what doesn't. I mean, there are so many examples of companies that have taken one industry's pricing model and and applied it to another one. I'm sure with a lot of the behavioural economics that's been introduced over the last decade or so, especially on pricing, it's opened up a huge minefield of exploration, especially for you, John. Is there, like, there There's one heuristic called anchoring. And with, with anchoring, if you'd like to elaborate on that yourself on how it, you, it might relate to people's perceptions on how to price things or value things. Well, I think it's, it, it can work in sort of different ways. I think, the, you know, there's examples where particular, the, the, sort of the rock star behavioural economists like Dan Ariely have done experiments where people are asked to um, – Right. Think of check what their first two digits of their social security number are, and then what they would pay for something. And those two numbers from their social security number have anchored or influenced the price they give that they're willing to pay for something. So those with low digits in their social security number are sort of indicated lower prices, and those that have higher numbers have indicated higher prices. So that's that's one example of of anchoring, and I think one of the one of the ones I love are decoys. Uh, so we, I mean, most people, well, not most people, but a lot of people have heard about the uh, one thousand dollar omelet at Norma's restaurant at a hotel in New York City. It's there to make the one hundred dollar omelet look really affordable. Uh, <laughs> you, or you said an omelet is this? It's a it's an omelet. Yeah, it's wow. got um, cab caviar and so forth. And on, on the menu, it says, Norma dares you to expense this. Mm. Uh, so it's a it's a $1,000 omelet. You look at the Apple Watch lately. I don't know what the what the uh, the euro price is for the Apple Watch, but in Australia, the, the regular models are sort of selling at around $300 to $500, but mm. that top of the range one is selling for $24,000 Australian dollars. Now, 
that who's going to who's going to buy that if apple sells one they'll they'll happily take the money off whoever wants to part with it but all of a sudden the other the other watches in the model in the lineup look really really attractive and affordable yes it's it's like when you go into i know harvey norman are australian based i think that's right they're in ireland aren't they they are in ireland and you go in and you buy a tv and the, they might have three sets of TVs that are quite similar, but different sizes. And people always pick the middle one based on price. So you have the cheaper, the the more expensive, and the middle one. So they have more of that in stock. I don't yeah, know so if it's Harvey te- Norman now itself, but many, many would have played that type of methodology to pricing products. And they have more the product of the centered, the middle, te- the middle priced. Absolutely. So the technical term for that's Goldilocks pricing. Not too big, not too small, just right. All right. Um, <laughs> well, it, it's it's originally called extremeness aversion, but um, so you uh, people avoid the extremes and so forth. But the, you know, the interesting thing about that is why is there three choices? Well, firstly, if you have one model television, you've got a fifty-fifty chance of closing the deal with the customer. They'll either buy it or they don't. If you have two models of televisions you force the customer to make a price-based decision. But when you have three televisions, uh, the, the customer is forced into making a value-based decision. And often part of the decision is already made from them because they, they're not thinking, do I buy from Harvey Norman? They're thinking, which one do I buy? Uh, so that, that is one of the beauties of having three products or at least an odd number of products in your product ladder. And you'll see it at, at Starbucks, that milk distribution company. You'll see it at McDonald's. Um, you'll see it everywhere. That you know, three three is is the golden number for for choices in a product ladder for that pricing architecture. Yeah, when you say they're Starbucks, I, I don't know what you mean by a milk distribution company, <laughs> but um, I, I, I understand the grande and the whatever three sizes of copies that they have, but people tend to go with the middle one. Mostly, yeah, they, they haven't been very successful in Australia. They've come in and they've realised that most Australians actually like what what the Americans call mum and pa coffee shops and so forth, and they've sort of pretty much disappeared with their tail between their legs because the the, the coffee just it, it was more just milk rather than coffee that they were offering in the Australian market. So, a few people I know call them a milk distribution company. Um, just name a Starbucks for a moment. I, I don't want to be mentioning some companies by name as such, but Starbucks recently, in the height of the recession, decided to increase their prices of the coffee in America. And their sole purpose was because they knew they were going to lose some customers, but the loyal customers were going to stay because their demand were inelastic. So they felt they had two types of customers uh, who viewed their products being elastic and one inelastic and most of them had inelastic demand and hence they were able to increase their profits based on this price increase. But you don't believe in, in elasticity, do you? <laughs> I'm not a big fan of it, no. I, I sort of liken it to the abominable snowman. Nobody's really sure of whether they, they've seen it or not. And there's a great quote from Scott McNeely who was the former CEO of Sun Microsystems who said that, and these are his exact words. Pricing is confusing for us too. In the whole history of Sun, we have never known what demand is or what the right price for our equipment is. Um, it, it, price elasticity is one of those things that people learn in, in Economics 101 or Marketing 101 and so forth, and they get a lot of they – they, they, they often think that's the – that that may be their knowledge of of pricing knowledge. So when you know their product managers or their pricing staff are, are proposing price changes and so forth, the only thing they've learned about price is price elasticity. So they fall back to that and say, well, is there elasticity in the marketplace and so forth? But you know, elasticity is based on you know the the change in demand over a change in price. But it doesn't take into account you know factors like um, you know the the entire product range. Sticking with Starbucks for a minute, Starbucks took out full-page ads in USA Today a couple of years ago bragging that their baristas could make 87,000 different combinations of coffees, different different products. Now, how do you work, you know, the, you know we've got big data and everything like that, but working out the price elasticity of 87,000 different combinations of coffees 
<laughs> it's not going to happen. And it's also, you know, price elasticity is a retrospective thing rather than a, a prospective thing. It's it's a backward looking thing rather than a forward looking thing. And the lot of the a lot of the dangers and the the traps I see companies falling into is they sort of tend to calculate price elasticity at um, an overall category level, if you like, rather than at an individual product level at which the customer purchases. So in short, I I, I know why there is interest in price elasticity, but I sort of think it's it's a bit like the abominable snowman. If a company is considering charging a price, but in order to gain market share, they decide to give the product away for free. And we see a lot of these in apps, for example. We can use Periscope, Instagram, Pinterest. We can listen to this podcast for free on iTunes. And we don't charge for the customers to use and to experience the value that's possibly gained from listening. So how do these companies survive it's a combination of things. So there, there's a you know the the internet has produced a whole lot of new pricing models. Obviously, one of the most popular ones is where it's it's free for users, but it's monetized say through third party advertising, and you know that's that's one monetization model for for podcasts and and websites and so forth. And you know there has been exponential growth in advertising industry, in advertising inventory, whether you're looking at television or internet and stuff like that. So that that's one way to that's one pricing model that's uh, that's out there for services like that. The internet's also driven the the 30 day trial really strongly. Yes, so absolutely. for those companies for those companies that don't want to go down to a freemium model, which I'll come back to in a minute, a lot of, there's a lot of interest in 30 day trials. And if you you know if you've got a business where customers are putting data onto your website or something like that, and there's you're creating it. Um, I hate to say it, but there, there's heroin pricing. You know, you get someone hooked on it and they mm-hmm. can't can't get off it um and then you've got that you know the the freemium model um and the freemium model is is relates to a a product ladder rather than individual product so for example linkedin there is a free version of linkedin uh, and there is a paid version linkedin has one of the highest successful conversion rates for paid to free advertisers where about 25 percent of their users actually pay for the the premium service, but 75% of people will be using it for free. Uh, in a lot of other um, industries, those those conversion percentages are, you know, single digits, often under 5%. Well, you mentioned earlier about the behavioral elements of pricing. Are there some myths to pricing whereby companies might believe that there's a way of targeting individuals, but there's a myth behind it all and it Probably their approach to it is incorrect. Uh, there are a few myths. Obviously, um, price elasticity is one. One of the other ones I see a lot of companies fall into is thinking that they can price low and yield their prices up later. That tends to be a bit of a myth. That doesn't really happen. There's no formula to calculate the consumer surplus. You know, you hear a lot of economists talking about consumer surplus which in business community is is known as leaving money on the table. There's no formula for that. Sometimes you hear people saying, look, customers don't have a choice. That's another myth. Customers do have choices. If you, there's, there's very few revolutionary monopolies around these days. So there's generally some sort of substitute for everything. There's no sort of real um, revolutionary monopolies anymore. Demand curves are observable in textbooks only, but not in the real world, is is my opinion as well. So there, there's a few myths, I think, of pricing in that list. Mm. I'd love for some of your opinion on price discrimination also. And we see this more so lately in terms of the streaming and especially in the music industry. Apple are fantastic for the price discrimination, possibly Amazon too where we have different countries with different standards of living and GDP per capita. And as a result, in order to target that market, they need to reduce their prices. But it's the very same product. Yeah. You know, back back in 2000, uh, I worked for Sir Stelios Hajiwanu, who um, you 
a lot of your listeners might know from EasyJet and things like that. But around that time, I was working for him in a chain of dynamically priced internet cafes called Easy Easy Everything or Easy Internet Cafe. And we always had to work out what our starting price was going to be in every country we went into. And we typically go, okay, we're going into Spain. So how much is a cup of coffee in Spain? How much is a, is a newspaper? Because that was sort of the price point where we wanted to, to pitch the internet access in the internet cafes. And those prices were all different. You know, the prices we charged in the UK were significantly higher than the prices we would charge in Spain or Italy, France and Germany and so forth because this was all pre-Euro. But even in the Euro area now, there are still price differences. And beyond the Euro area, you know, American prices are a lot more expensive than Indian prices. So price discrimination is alive and well. You know, there has been people that suggest that, you know, particularly the internet and the euro would equalise prices in geographic markets. It hasn't really happened. I think the where discrimination is about to get really interesting is in the airline industry. In the airline industry, I think until Uber came along, the airline industry was the industry whose pricing model you read about most in newspapers and magazines and blogs and things like that. And I think Uber's got that um, that title these days. But why I find the airline industry interesting at the moment is because I think the airlines are now starting to realise, you know what, with with online selling and so forth and our frequent flyer programs and things like that, we can put all of these things together and we can do personalised pricing. And why that's interest, really interesting is because for so many years, the airlines had been more concerned about their inventory than their passengers, and personalised pricing actually changes that. So it, it makes the airlines a little bit more interested about the passengers and less so about their inventory and bums on seats. Reiner has actually taken on a certain – they're great for this, actually, Reiner, and they're more, becoming more customer-focused and friendly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Hard to believe, but <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Well, that's the marketing anyway. But I, I mean, I, 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 remember, I remember doing a – I did a, an interview with a woman who ran the Savvy Selling, Savvy Selling podcast on Business Week many, many years ago. And during that podcast, I mentioned to her – I wouldn't be surprised if one day Michael O'Leary tries to charge people to go to the toilet on a flight. <laughs> and, and sure enough, within a couple of years, I, I read an article where he was seriously considering the possibility. He heard your podcast. He, heard he did. Episode. He did. But sure, apparently um, they served five olives and they decided to remove one and they saved themselves a fortune. So that marginal pricing possibly works as well. I don't yes, think they serve olives anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it, it is true. One of one of my one of my roles in corporate land before I started consulting to companies was in airline catering. And it is true. You can save peanuts by halving the by slicing olives. Mm. Should we pay for education? I don't know what the model is in Australia. It's apparently free education in Ireland. Just pay a registration fee, but it's nothing like the United States. No, we're a little bit in between here in Australia. So we did have uh, a long period of time where education, particularly tertiary education, was free and fees have gradually been introduced. But they've again, they've also differentiated the customers as well. So Australia is a very attractive place for overseas students to come and they typically pay a lot more. And again, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing there is the threat of disruption for MOOCs and so forth. So, you know, a lot of universities, and so if, if your readers aren't familiar with MOOCs, it's an acronym for Massive Open Online Courses, which are things like the Khan Academy and Coursera provide and so forth. And, and they're free courses and so forth, but the completion rate is extremely low. And... A lot of universities are worried about them, but I don't think they're as they should be as worried as they are. I mean, I've tried a Coursera course and I didn't even start it. I just didn't, <laughs> didn't have the time to do it. I had every, all the good intentions, but that was as far as I got. 
I, I did a Coursera in a course myself just to try it out and see what it was all about. And I did had you finish it? I finished it, yes, but I signed up for another two, but I never finished those at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wanted to get a taster. But I had a previous guest of mine, Professor John Cochran, in episode 29. He did a MOOC course as well. And again, tens of thousands of people would sign up for this. And it was on pricing, actually. It was a master's level course or, or possibly PhD. It was a, a postgrad course anyway. And it's something that takes is very time consuming, very expensive, resource focused as well because of all the, the technology in the background staff and applications that go with it. So unless the third level is well equipped for this, there's possibly, I suppose, a, I don't know if you want to put an analogy like survival of the fittest. If some other third level universities or colleges are taking this on and take out some of the registrations that go on in other colleges around the world. Um, but I'm sure it'll be something that will evolve over time and may end up being a different beast. It might be serving people who do not have access to education in third worlds. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It'd be great for, great for that sort of thing. But you know, there's, you know, we're talking about myths before. One thing that is not a myth, is that you get what you pay for. And if it's free, you know what you're going to get? Mm. Not a lot. And that's the whole uh, foundation to what you're saying about having value-based pricing because people know more about marketing than marketing knows more about the people. (laughs) Absolutely. As you mentioned, their heroin pricing or the 30-day money-back guarantee, you know, this 30-day money-back guarantee is fantastic for people who – would want to sign up and try try something. And if they don't like it, they'll get their money back. I say very few people do that, but the people need to experience the value and they will pay for value. Absolutely. We've, we've got a bit of a, a bit of a tussle going on at the moment here in Australia because Netflix entered the, the Australian marketplace uh, maybe six months ago, but they announced their intention to do so well in advance. So, two of the other local media companies actually set up their own online streaming service before Netflix arrived. So we've got, you know, you've got free-to-air television, you've got paid television, which is your your equivalent of Sky and so forth, and then you've got Netflix, um, a service called Presto and a service called Stan. And in a country of 24 million, that's going to be, um, that, that there's two there's not enough market there for all of those businesses to comfortably coexist and so forth. But all the, the, the Stan, the Presto, the Netflix are all offering 30-day trials for free and so forth. So mo- most Australians can do three months of free free online streaming before they decide which one they're going to go with. And there's merit in making your product easy to buy for customers. I always think of Apple iTunes pricing as why not pricing. You know, I'm driving home from work. Um, I hear a song on the radio. I get home. It's $1.69 in the Apple store. Why not buy it? The video streaming companies are doing 30-day trials, but you've got to be able to conversely turn it off if you don't want to continue with it for another into the the paid period and so forth. And Netflix do that really well. Like, for example, Sky Sports or Sky here in the UK and Ireland, they tend to make agreements with, say, the Premiership. And lately they've done one for Gaelic football, one of the best sports in the world. I'm not sure if you ever heard of Gaelic football, John. Well, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got got the best sport in the world as well with Australian rules football, which is actually... um, which is a knockoff you know, of Gaelic football. Yeah, or, or vice versa. But, yeah. <laughs> but we do, our countries do have a modified rules competition every couple of years because the Irish came out to the gold fields with their Gaelic football due to the gold rush here and um, the rules got slightly modified. So, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's big money in sponsorship of football competitions and, and things like that, which, you know, is... It will be interesting to see whether someone like Netflix or a similar outfit sometime in the future actually bids on sporting rights for something, for some sort of competition. You know, a, a significant sporting competition was only available via an online streaming service. Yes. That would be an interesting. It would actually, wouldn't it? Mm. That would be a very, very interesting model. And what's surprising is... Australian rules football or American football or Irish Gaelic football or football or soccer in the UK, they all provide value to the customer. 
But of those sports that I mentioned, Gaelic football is the only amateur sport in that the players do not get paid. But they're uh-huh. as professional as the others because you know from watching the Australian rules versus Gaelic football. It's a fantastic game when we're putting our best 15 against your best 15 in the country. And, you know, Ireland, they've won the, the series so many times and likewise the Australians. But, you know, they're professionals in, their, in the type of sports that they play. But unfortunately, they don't get paid. Yeah, and I remember, was it around 1998, 1999, that Rugby Union went from amateur to professional and it was very... It was a very noticeable you know, change in you know the game, the events, the experience, and and so forth. There, there's some really interesting stuff happening in the pricing space in sports as well. So um, I don't know what the situation's like in Ireland, but you know most American sporting clubs are uh, either firmly committed to or dabbling around in sort of airline-style dynamic pricing where the tickets for a game can can vary by who they're playing, where they're playing, even down to players and weather. Um, and, you know, that's, that's sort of firmly entrenched in America. But in Australia, they've been dabbling with sort of five tiers of pricing for Australian football. Um, but it sort, of, it sort of backfired last year. Fans stayed away. And I think there's a... You know, in in Australia, there is an element of um, Australian rules of sport being uh, the people's game, and you know it should be. It's a bit more egalitarian. There's a there's less willingness to pay higher prices for for blockbuster games, and in fact, one of the local newspapers here actually called the most expensive started calling this sort of pricing the blockbuster tax. Just you know, charging people more money just because, you know, two of the, you know, the strongest teams of the day were, were playing in a, um, a showdown. Mm. And so dynamic pricing is all these different tiers or are there live changes to prices? You mentioned weather, for example. So if it starts raining and people have bought their tickets to reduce their prices even further, if it's going to be a bad day weather-wise. Yeah, I, I guess one of the interesting things about pricing, you know, is that there is no dictionary. So um, a lot of people sort of think, oh, I'm going to leave my legacy on the world of pricing and I'm going to use one term and hopefully it'll get attributed to me and stuff like that. But I think there's big differences between variable pricing and dynamic pricing. So you see stuff like what Uber are doing. That, that is pretty close to dynamic pricing, the stuff I was doing in the internet cafes around 2000, 2002 was truly dynamic. You know, I could, there was a, there was a store on Tottenham Court Road in London that had 518 workstations in it. I could charge 518 different prices depending on the occupancy there. Wow. But in the, in the Australian football example I gave you, there was just five tiers of pricing. There was A, B, C, D and E tiered games and so forth. Now that you know, some people would call that dynamic, but it's it's actually more a little bit variable rather than, you know, the wholesale dynamic that we see on something like Uber, something like that. Have you read the book Mishanomics? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, but Not as yet. you know, I have <laughs> it is it is on my shelfie. Um, shelfie, yes. Uh, it is on my pile of, of books to read. At the moment, I'm reading Priceless by William Poundstone. And once I finish that, which won't be too far away, I think it'll be a, a toss-up between Richard Taylor's misbehaving book, sort of on the, the history of behavioural economics, or the fantastic metonomics book that I won on this website competition a couple of weeks ago. Would you like to elaborate on that, actually, John? <laughs> well, I th- it was it was a website called Economic Rockstar, and I signed up for a newsletter, and I did... I, I, Next thing I know, I got an email saying I'd won a competition. Uh, so for all your listeners, it is actually worth signing up to get all the full benefits of Economic Rockstar. There are examples of pricing in there when it comes to the meat industry, so I think it's something that you'd actually enjoy. And that's heard, what your yes. company, Sans Pre, means, uh, priceless. Priceless. Well, yes, I, I, I think that that is what a knowledge of pricing is worth to a company. It's, it's priceless. Um, you know, it's it's the most powerful profit improvement lever any company has. And research after research shows that if you can improve 
part of your business by 1%. If it's sales, you'll get X percent improvement in profit. If it's a 1% improvement in fixed cost or reduction, it's it's another percent and so forth. But a 1% improvement in price will just flow th- straight through to the bottom line in normal circumstances and you're looking at a 10 or 11% improvement in operating profits. So people need to, to know this. They need to manage price properly. One of the things I, I do at most of my workshops is I ask the people, has they got a dedicated pricing department where they work and have they got a procurement department? And about 90 to 100% of people will have procurement departments and about 10% will have pricing departments. What that says is people are, companies are more concerned about the price they pay than the price they get. And that, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm not sure if you heard of the Banksy experiment in New York. You know the graffiti no. artist Banksy? I do, yes. Yes. Love he, his work. Yes, he decided to hold a stall in, in New York, someplace in New York City where a, an elderly man would man the stall and selling his canvases with a lot of his paintings, so all original works, for $60. Right. So I think he made something like $420 in sales for the day. Only about three people had purchased from him one Chicago, one local New Yorker, and someone from New Zealand. So these paintings or these works of art were worth in the tens of thousands of dollars, but people didn't know. So, you know, I have a quote here about why Banksy actually did this. Uh, I know street art can feel increasingly like the marketing wing of an art career, so I wanted to make some art without the price tag attached. There's no gallery show or book or film. It's pointless, which hopefully means something. So it just shows people's perception of value. If people knew this was Banksy's. They'd be queuing up. They'd queue up for blocks to, in order to visit a gallery of Banksy's artwork. People passed by, didn't buy the artwork. And it's the same with a classical violinist, Joshua Bell. And he was in a subway in Washington, D.C. And the night before, he played in a packed-out theatre with tickets worth $100. But no one knew. Uh, people just walked past Joshua Bell. Mm. He played something like six pieces of uh, music on a three and a half million dollar violin. And I think he only he only earned twenty seven dollars in tips. The only people that really paid attention was one elderly man and a number of children who were ushered on by their parents. So, so uh, there's two two sort of golden rules of pricing and you won't you won't hear these in economics 101 courses either. Rule number one is all value is subjective. Value is in the eyes of the customer. No matter what price you put on something, at the end of the day, the customer is the single point of failure. And if they don't see value at the price you've attached to the product and so forth, they're not going to buy. So that's, that's really interesting when it comes to things like a pay-what-you-want pricing model, which, you know, your listeners may be familiar with Radiohead's In Rainbow album a couple of years ago, which was offered on a pay-what-you-want basis. Um, John Bon Jovi in New Jersey has a restaurant called The Soul Kitchen, I think, which also operates on a pay-what-you-want basis. Um, and I think you know, pay-what-you-want is actually the purest form of value-based pricing that you can possibly get because it's the customer determining price, not the vendor. So that's rule number one of pricing, that all value is subjective. But rule number two is that all value is contextual. What that means is that that violinist, for example, Joshua Bell, he can probably command a huge fortune when he is performing in an opera house or whatever the case may be. Uh, but where he's taken out of that high-priced context and put into a low-priced context like busting on, busking on the street, he's not going to charge the – he's not going to get the revenue or the prices that he would get in an opera house. So th- this is just so subjective. Uh, you mentioned it. <laughs> you know, so like I know I'd be guilty of that as well if I was so oh. – not that if I saw Joshua Bell or Banksy, I probably would have walked past because that Banksy paint, uh, these graffiti pieces for $60, I'd be thinking in my mind, I'd pay $10 for it, even though there were tens of thousands. There's, if I knew that in advance, I'd be paying a couple of thousand for a piece. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's, that's, a, that's an incredible experiment that he's done there. I'm, I'm, 
I'll get some details off you when we finish the uh, the recording, actually, because I, yeah, I'm I'm surprised that he only sold three works of art. I mean, there was there was an, he's, he has a piece of work here in Melbourne, and it was recently painted over, and there was a huge outcry over it. Mm. Um, so, yeah. yeah, and again, it that's that's the art of pricing. You know, it doesn't conform to you know the the rules of of, of economics and demand and supply and so forth. And in the previous episode, and episode number 32, I spoke with Joe Gladstone, who actually spoke about the pay-what-you-want pricing model, and we discussed John Bon Jovi's Cafe and Radiohead's album too, yeah? So I'd love to check it out. John, could I ask you a couple of quick-fire questions before we wrap up? Sure. If that's okay. I would love to know who your influencers are in economics. Would it be Kahneman? I think you mentioned Kahneman or Ariely there too. Would they be influencers, yeah. or am I putting words in your mouth? No, no. No, you're not putting words in my mouth. You know, I never used Samuelson or anything like that. And, you know, I'm looking at my bookcase now and I've got The Wealth of Nations up there by Adam Smith and so forth. But I I think the behaviourists are the economists that have been most influential to me as pure economists rather than those who've sort of specialised in pricing who may or may not be economists they could be marketers or finance people and so forth so i think yeah the the behavioralists are probably um the best bet and do you have a recommended book that you'd love to share with our listeners on economics or on pricing Uh, on anything john it's yeah on anything it really depends you know if for anyone who is in the digital technology technology space i actually loved a book called information rules by shapiro and hal varian that came out at the height of the dot-com boom in about 1999. Everyone was saying um, new economy, new rules of economics, and these guys were saying, no, it is a new economy, but it's the same old rules of economics. So I really like that. There's a lot of pricing. Some of the pricing books are starting to get more and more specialised and so forth. Bob Phillips, who I think is at one of the New York universities, he wrote a fantastic book called Pricing and Revenue Optimization. So I really that's one of the best pricing books that I think is around. In terms of more general economic books, I think I've sort of heard some of your previous guests mention things like new ideas from dead economists and Paul Omeron, butterfly economics and stuff like that. So I'm I'm much more a micro economist than a macro economist and for a novelty factor i do like pj o'rourke ceo of the sofa and eat the rich yes that's the second i mentioned actually pj o'rourke <laughs> yeah. andrew heaton um, spoke of that he's a he's a comedian i had as a guest on episode six and he spoke about pj o'rourke's book i haven't read it yet but it's on my agenda all right <laughs> I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. Do you have an internet resource you'd love to share with our listeners that you'd like to use as part of your work or in your personal life? One of the most common resources I refer clients to is not a website, but I tell them to Google the search term 77 inspirational pricing pages. Because I'm constantly being asked, you know, what is, what, how do we, what does good pricing look like on a website? Or how do we build our subscription packages and, and show that package A has got X and package Y has got something else in it and so forth. So, I'm constantly saying to people, just Google 77 inspirational pricing pages. And what you get, obviously, is examples of 77 different pricing pages from 77 different products all around the world and so forth. And you look through them and you can see some people put the cheapest product on the left, some people put it on the right, some people indicate what their most popular product is, some people say this is recommended for you, all sorts of things. You can see all sorts of things when you look at those 77 pages and it's you know it's a one-shop stop for a bit of pricing inspiration. Great, fantastic. John, I'm going to close out the interview now. If that's okay with you, I'm taking you away from the kids for a little bit too long, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's been absolutely fantastic. John, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they can find you. You can find me at sons-pre.com or 
pricingprofits.com. The best way to get in touch is to give me a call. There's US, UK and Australian numbers there. I'm also on uh, Twitter and things like that, but phone call so much better because you're not limited to 140 characters and I can't see you typing mistakes. <laughs> you can find all the links to John on economicrockstar.com forward slash John Manning and John is spelt with a J-O-N. John, you are an economic rock star. Thank you for being so generous with your time. My pleasure, Frank. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to here. Your full-time job is academic? Yes, I'm lecturing at a third-level institution here in Waterford in Ireland. Okay. So Where the crystal comes from. Yes, that's it. That's it. So the crystal city. We, yes, crystal. we've been to the factory. We actually we have purchased Waterford Crystal at the factory there. The college I actually lecture at is actually next door to the factory. No, the factory's gone. They're actually after outsourcing that. But they have right. a smaller unit now in town where they do um, kind of special pieces and that. So you have been you have visited Waterford in the past, yeah. I've been to, we've been to Ireland twice. So we, when we lived in the UK, we, um, one trip we went, we flew into Dublin and then we did a loop down through, uh, Waterford, Cork, up through Dingle, Galway, and then back across the centre. And then the second time we again flew into Dublin, then drove across the doorway and did the, the loop up the north. So up through, uh, Derry and Giant's Causeway and stuff like that. So you probably headed down to Wexford as well on your way down to Waterford, did you? Mm, yeah, Wexford. Yeah, that's where I'm originally from, yeah. Okay, yeah. I think our first port of call was uh, Avoca because Bally Kiss Angel was, you know, the, the number one TV show at the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's where, stuff where everyone's in, radars now. <laughs> where was that number one in Australia, was it? <laughs> I don't no, think... no, it, well, it, was, it was on the BBC because we, we lived in London for six years. So. But did it do well in... UK, yeah? It did really well in the UK because it had, what, Tomlinson in it who was, you know, the the priest was um, an English actor. And, okay. Yeah. Lovely. Thanks very much, John. My good pleasure, day. Frank. Good day. Have a good day. See <laughs> bye, you later. Bye.